From New York City to Los Angeles, Powered Up Talk Radio is giving women of all ages permission to live the life they've always dreamed of. Each week, Powered Up Talk Radio explores innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be. Right here, right now. Here are your hosts, Sandra Beck and Linda Franklin. Everybody, this is Sandra Beck, and I'm here with Jeffrey Mishlove, and he is the winner. He is a contest winner. He wrote an uh, an article on life after death. He won a contest with Robert Bigelow, best evidence for survival of human consciousness after death. Am I correct? That is correct. That's pretty cool. So tell me, what is your background, and how could you possibly know about human consciousness after death. Now, I think there's consciousness after death, but I'm only a radio host. You have a lot more credibility than I do. So why don't you share with us your background? Yeah, Sandra, thank you for inviting me to your program. I have a doctoral degree in parapsychology. It's a unique degree. It's very likely the only doctoral diploma that actually says parapsychology ever awarded from an accredited university. And it was the University of California at Berkeley in 1980. So I've, uh, it's been 42 years now, and uh, I'm kind of lonely being the only uh, person with such a diploma. But to be fair, there are hundreds of people who do doctoral research in this area. Their diplomas say something else. They typically don't say parapsychology on them. And uh, back to the topic of life after death, which is one of the subjects of great interest to parapsychologists. Um, if you had known me, Sandra, 50 years ago in 1972, you would have seen a graduate student in criminology wow. volunteering at San Quentin Prison in the psychiatric unit conducting group therapy sessions with murderers and rapists. And it was at that time I had a dream of my great uncle Harry, and it was the most powerful dream of my life. I can look back and say I've never had a subsequent dream or one before it. It was so powerful. He came to me in this dream and we were communicating at a soul-to-soul -soul level. And I was so deeply touched that when I awoke from the dream, I was just sobbing, crying tears of joy and singing at the same time wow. a song from the Jewish religious liturgy, a very sacred song called Avinu Malkenu. Mm -hmm. And I wrote home. I said, how's Uncle Harry? I had a dream about him. My mother called me as soon as she got my letter and said, how did you know Uncle Harry just died? Mm. I subsequently learned that he died almost at the very moment that I had that dream about him. Fabulous, fabulous. So it was that experience that sort of prompted me to refocus my life instead of looking at the negative side of human deviance, mm -hmm. 
meaning psychopathology and crime, which you can study that at any college or university, I decided to switch over to the positive side of human deviance because I began discussing this experience with my professors at Berkeley, one of the great universities. Oh, who doesn't love Berserkly? We love that. And I, I discovered, however, that almost nobody had anything intelligent to say. So I realized if I'm going to get to the bottom of what was the most powerful experience of my young life at that point, mm-hmm. I'm going to have to become my own expert. And that's what I've been up to for the last 50 years. Well, I think that's terrific. I mean, I find it, you know, obviously it's it's my field of interest um, and there are so many credible sources out there today. But 50 years ago, you know, the idea of talking to the dead, the idea of life after death. I mean, you have the Christian, you know, hereafter, life thereafter, you know, kind of mindset. But then you have other major religions that, you know, when you're dead, you're dead. So for us to go against that grain, especially you 50 years ago, is just remarkable. Well, it it was. It took a major shift. I had to agonize for months and months, like, how am I going to do this? Mm -hmm. And uh, finally, one day I knew that the answer was going to come in a dream. I just knew tonight I will have the dream. I'll have my answer. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. I dreamt I was visiting some friends of mine who lived across town in Berkeley, Mm-hmm. knocked on the door of their apartment in the dream. Nobody was there. So I found a key, let myself into the apartment, walked into the middle of their living room, and there, smack dab, in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine. In the dream, it was hmm. a magazine called I, E-Y-E. Okay. And I'm paging through this magazine. When I woke up from the dream, with this feeling like, wow, I have the answer. But I hadn't a clue as to what what the answer meant. (laughs) Yeah. So I actually acted out the dream. I put on my tennis shoes. This was like in the days before running shoes. (laughs) And ran across town five miles to this apartment, knocked on the door, no answer just as I had dreamt. And in fact, I happened to know where they hid a key. And I let myself into the apartment, walked into the living room, and there sitting right in the middle of the living room floor was a magazine, just as I had dreamt. And I picked it up. The magazine was not called I, it was called Focus. Jeffrey, I'm just going to jump in for a second here because now is a really good time to thank our sponsor. Our sponsor today is Best Fiends, and you can download Best Fiends for free from the App Store or Google Play, and I'm playing it right now. I'm on level 375, and I'm competing in Beach Bash, and I have to complete 15 challenges to get Jogger JoJo. Now, I have to tell you, these characters are super cute. The music is great. 
And it busts me out of my funk because, you know, on this show, we talk about happiness being an inside job. Happiness comes from within. But you know what? There are days when happiness does not come from within. And I need something else. I need something to bust me out of my funk, to cheer me up, to get me on my way. And that's what Best Fiends does for me. And I play it everywhere. And the reason I can play it everywhere is because once you download Best Fiends, you can play it anywhere, even without an internet connection, which is great if you're stuck without Wi-Fi. You can collect tons of characters, these little fiends that get powered up as you play more levels. And you know what? Every win brings new challenges, thousands and thousands of puzzles to play. And they're new in-game events added all the time. Like I said, I am playing the Beach Bash right now, and it is super fun, you guys. I just love the little bug. She's got her, like, headphones on and her little cute beach outfit, and it's just really fun, you guys. So I want you to download Best Fiends free from the App Store or Google Play, and plus, you can earn even more with $5 worth of in-game rewards when you reach level 5. That's Friends Without the R, Best Fiends, Friends Without the R. You'll be glad you did. Download Best Fiends free from the App Store or Google Play. Now we're talking today with Jeffrey Mishlove and you were talking about the Focus Magazine. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? For your listeners who are in the San Francisco Bay Area, they may know this is the magazine of listener-sponsored radio and television, KQED in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as I was paging through the magazine, it dawned on me for the first time in my life, I could pursue my interests by doing what you're doing, getting involved, well, in my case, in the nonprofit segment of, of the media, mm-hmm. So, which was a big shift for me because in those days, I did not own a radio or a TV. I had no, I, I, I was a long-haired hippie. I didn't <laughs> believe in radio or TV. I thought electronic communication was phony baloney, mm. that the only authentic communication was face-to-face. Wow. And it changed my mind at that moment. And I went over to uh, the local Pacifica radio station, nonprofit radio in Berkeley, KPFA, and volunteered. Nice. And even though I only had, well, not only, even though I had a master's degree in criminology by then, they said, sit at this desk, and when you hear the buzzer, push this button and let people in the front door. <laughs> that was my I job. I got your master's degree. Yeah. I gladly accepted it, and within three weeks, I had learned how to produce a radio program. I did a program called, uh, you don't have to be from out of town to be psychic. And (laughs) interviewing local friends of mine in in the pagan community. Mm -hmm. And the program director liked it. And he said, well, we have a regular slot for you every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. you can host the, a program called The Mind's Ear about all the subjects I was interested in the most. Yeah. And I, I've suddenly found myself sitting across the table with world-class experts who had just written books on all the subjects I liked with 10,000 people listening in. That's what gave me the confidence to go back to the university 
and take advantage of a very obscure rule that they had to create an individual oh. interdisciplinary doctoral major in parapsychology. So that's how I got started. That's neat. What a great story. What groundbreaking work too. People ask me, you know, is there a lesson in all of this? And what I like to tell people is if you resolve to become the best version of yourself, mm -hmm. the universe will reach out to help you. Absolutely, they will. Hundred, hundred thousand percent. And I'm, I'm the living testament, not as if my life has been easy these last 50 years. Getting a doctoral degree in parapsychology meant that uh, I was pretty much unemployable at, at that point. But I you know, was entrepreneurial and I, basically I've had a career on radio and television and now on YouTube. Uh, mostly for the last 50 years. So when Robert Bigelow, who is a um, Las Vegas billionaire entrepreneur, right. set up his Bigelow Institute for Consciousness Studies and offered a prize, uh, I was able to enter the competition and win because my essay included links to like 40 people I'd interviewed who could sure. offer personal testimony about the afterlife or half of them were scholars who could comment on the personal testimony. Sure. Well, I think that's part of it, you know, with, you know, like when I, I interviewed like PMH Atwater and Barry Eaton, you know, people who publicly come out and spoken, you know, about the afterlife. And, but, you know, even PMH Atwater said, no matter how many studies she did, she didn't have the alphabet soup, you know, the, the letters behind her name, you know, the PhD, the MD, or, you know, Evan Alexander, the, the neuro, neurosurgeon, you know, he had the, the, the creds, but he was the patient, you know what I mean? So there's always this kind of thing that goes on in your head. If you haven't had an NDE or you haven't had some sort of epiphany experience um, like you had, there's this healthy suspect of going, well, it's just your imagination. It's just the drugs. Your brain was misfiring. You know, there's a million things, you know, to to explain your idea of the afterlife, because quite frankly, unless you've gone there and come back, there's not a lot of empirical proof that would satisfy, you know, the scientific community. That's why I find this so interesting. It's the reason that I formed a couple of my radio shows because I wanted to interview shamans and mystics and rabbis and priests to find out, you know, hey, what do you know? And interviewing Trudy Harris, um, who wrote Glimpses of Heaven and more Glimpses of Heaven, you know, here's a nurse handling the sick and dying as they bounce back and forth because it was what I experienced with my own mother. I would watch her leave her body, no signs of life, very little respiration, and then that afternoon she'd be back and I would ask her mom, where did you go? You know, where did you go? Cause you weren't in your body. You, I couldn't feel you. I couldn't see you. I could look at your body laying there, you know, you know, the chest going up and down and breathing, but there was no life force energy. There was nothing there. And that's what started my hunt on this going. And then I did have a baby where I bled out and they had to resuscitate me and where I went. And when I came back, I was a very different person and my experience changed everything on the hope or believing 
became knowing. And so I love that you have empirical things, you point to evidence, you can, and you can articulate these things, because I think many of us who have gone to the other side and came back or gone to the other room, that's what my mom always called it, you just go to another room. Um, we don't have the words to articulate like you speak so eloquently i don't have the words to articulate what happened to me because it's so overwhelming i can barely even explain it well of course you're going to a place beyond normal uh, human language right our language is based on our external senses and what we call the physical world and uh, when you go inside into this dreamlike realm of, of the afterlife, uh, it, the best you can do is try to describe it in human language and it always falls short. Right, it does, it does. And I think when you've had that experience and that experience opened up this door for me where my mom has been dead, I guess her earthly body has been dead, I don't know, 10, 12 years now, but yet I still, you know, when you were talking about, you know, being able to dream, and for the longest time after my mom died, about a year after my mom died, when I'd wake up in the morning, and granted, I'm a single mom, two little kids, tired all the time, I'd pop up out of wake, and I would sit up in bed going, and the first word out of my, out of my mind was, Mom, where did you go? Mom? It was like I was sitting there having tea with her, and she just evaporated out of the room. And this went on and on for about two years until... I started forming the shows that we have today where I could ask people going, what is going on? I'm not actively dreaming about my mom. It's not like I had this dream and woke up out of the dream. I wake up out of a dead sleep. And then my first thing is the question like, mom, mom, where did you go? That was really puzzling for me for a long time. I thought I was losing my mind. Well, I guess you've uh, made a recovery since then. Since then, a little bit. Yeah. Well, the thing is, these are very common experiences. Yeah, but and, nobody talks about them because we don't want to be the kook that lives down the street. Well, the irony is that for the last, I think, over 70 years since they've been doing survey research, mm -hmm. over 70% of the American public consistently says they believe in an afterlife. And the interesting thing is, well, you could say, yeah, but they were indoctrinated by their religions. The fact of the matter is, religious affiliation has been dropping that entire sure. time. But afterlife belief hasn't been dropping. And I believe it's because people like yourself are having direct experiences of one sort or another. They're really very common. And we're not afraid to talk about it. You know, I remember I was talking with PMH Atwater on the air and she asked me a couple of questions and then it all tumbled out on me. And I thought, oh, the cat's out of the bag. Like not only I didn't say it at my like family picnic. No, I said it on the air for everyone to judge. And I remember shaking in my hands. You know, I was thinking, oh, nobody's going to ever take me seriously anymore as a professional, you know, and having all these, you know, feelings about it when in the reality was all I got on my social media and people calling me going, I can't believe you said that. And I'm thinking, well, I did. And they're like, I had this. 
this happened to me you know that one conversation opened up that door and and proves that this is not that rare an occurrence but i think up until recently it was rare to share it and that's true because i think maybe somewhere around 25 or 30 percent of the population are hardcore skeptics but they mm -hmm. tend to be people who uh, are in positions of power in the yes. realms of education and science mm -hmm. so if you have a teaching job or if you are working in a scientific establishment of one kind or another like a university uh you're afraid that people will think you're crazy. And right. I can tell you this as a parapsychologist, and I know I can speak for the entire community of parapsychologists. There may be as many as three, 400 of them around the world. Mm -hmm. Every time we speak in public, people come up to us and they say, can I tell you about my experience? I've never told anybody before because they don't feel it's safe to talk about. And one of my goals, one of the reasons that I host the New Thinking Aloud channel on YouTube and put up four videos every week is because I'm trying to change the conversation, making it safe for people to acknowledge their actual experiences and to remove this terrible stigma associated with parapsychology. Absolutely. You know, parapsychology from, you know, 200 years ago would be either medicated, electrocuted, or locked in a room. The Society for Psychical Research, which is the discipline that sort of preceded parapsychology, mm -hmm. was founded in England in 1882. So, we actually have at this point oh, 140 years of empirical scientific data supporting the powers of the human mind and the possibilities for life after death. 140 years. Yeah. That's an enormous amount of evidence. And yet you will hear skeptics say every day, oh, there isn't a shred of evidence. Right. Which is and just... B.S. Right. I got 160 hours of radio interviews. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you're going to tell me there's no evidence because they do. They tell me things like, oh, well, that's just because, you know, the person was on drugs and they were given all these things. And I remember Trudy Harris being on the show talking about hospice. And she's like, not every patient took drugs at the end of their life. You know, there's lots of them that exited naturally. And so for her to be talking about these things so matter-of-factly really gave me permission to have these conversations and i think companies like netflix and you know some of the other amazon prime you know they're putting some afterlife shows together that are done in a respectful manner with you know research behind it and credible people i think that's done a lot to open the doors for this kind of conversation well, in, in fact, there was a recent Netflix six-part documentary series on uh, the afterlife uh, produced by Leslie Kane, a reporter for the New York Times. She was one of the judges mm -hmm. of the uh, Bigelow Institute oh, nice. competition. Yeah. So she knew what she was talking about. She did, yeah. Yeah. So let me ask you, if you could give our listeners 
one thing that came from your years of research like for me when people ask me that question i say i went into the hospital being a believer and i came out a knower mm -hmm. <laughs> i used to believe it but then i knew it so that was my experience of that hospital experience so that's my claim to you know know about the afterlife for you what would be the most important thing that you could share with people today to give them comfort, especially if they're sick or they're dying or they have a loved one who's sick or dying, that can provide great comfort. Well, um, this may not provide comfort to everybody. However, I think there's a lesson in, in what I've learned. And the lesson comes from people like yourself who have had near-death experiences. Almost universally, they come back and talk about the overwhelming sense of love yes. and oneness that they experience. So strong, I remember uh, interviewing Elizabeth Crone, who co-authored a book called Changed in a Flash with Professor Jeffrey Kripal. She was struck by lightning and uh, had a near-death experience. And she said uh, about this overwhelming sense of love, she said, I know about love. I'm a mother. But this was way beyond. Way and beyond. I had experience even as a mother. And people say it's not just knowing that you're surrounded by love. You become that yes. love. Yeah. So the lesson that I think for those of us who haven't had a near-death experience, and I haven't, I had my dream of my Uncle Harry was what we call an after-death communication, which is a little different. Uh, but I tell people the lesson is love everyone and everything all of the time, mm. which is a goal. I can't say that, yeah, I'm, I'm there. I'm not there yet. Sure. It's hard enough to love everyone, let alone everything. Right. <laughs> but, but I think, you know, you're right on to something because... You know, the things that stick out to me from that experience that I had was being in this, you know, brilliant, I can't even have the words, like a brilliant gold white lightness. Um, but I remember being me and not being able to see my hands. And I'm like looking down, trying to go like, where are my hands? Where are my legs? Like, I know I'm still me. And it was like the ocean drop of water thing where I was part of this everything i was still me but i was also part of this and then the coolest thing was the whole thing was reverberating with this just amazing love and it accordioned it went in and out like expand and contract and i was like expand and contract and i wasn't on a ventilator so it couldn't have been that and then i woke up and i was trying to figure out what it is that I experienced and I came across just a, a writing, you know, in my, I must have read 25, 30 books trying to figure out what happened to me. And somebody said, the Holy Spirit is the breath of God and the breath of love. And that to me was that love, like it felt like love was breathing. And I, you know, looked up this author and of course, you know, it was an NDE author talking about her experience, but you know, if you can just imagine this place where you and I didn't want to come back. I felt so good. There was no pain. There was no sadness. I didn't miss anybody. And I was still cognitive enough that I knew who I was. I knew where I had been. I knew I had been in the hospital and, you know, I knew all this stuff. Um, 
but it was just this amazing brilliant golden whiteness that was breathing and then it was only like years later that i got oh that's oneness like oh the breath of god yes oh that's love because it is so overwhelming and i know uh, having been a psychotherapist and occasionally dealing with people who have had such experiences when you come back to your normal everyday world it's not always easy to integrate that profound experience because everything's stupid like you know like at its basic level you've got kids fighting over a toy that's stupid you've got adults fighting over a marriage license and a divorce that's stupid you have people haggling over the price of a car and they're getting so upset and i did walk around for the first year after you would think i would be this blissful newborn mother oh everything's beautiful i'm like God, are we dumb? Like we are focused on the wrong things. We're treating each other in the wrong way. None of this stuff matters. Like what people are so upset about just doesn't matter. Just love each other, you know? And I felt like I should be in this white robe, you know, walking around the mall, you know, with this newborn in this completely changed body. Because prior to that, I was more type A, ran a sales company, had a master's degree in business, you know, 401k, profit sharing, you know, everything, all my ducks lined up in a row. And then I had this baby spend 10 days in the hospital and come out like hippie, peace, love, you know, love you, brother, love you, sister. You know, it was a really big change. There's an enormous difference between the world described by people who have had these mystical and near-death experiences and then this physical world that, that we live in that some people think you know is this is a world dominated by evil i certainly don't go that far but i understand why some people would feel that way yeah because they watch the news all day long they sit there and watch what's fed to them you know like pavlov's dog they push a button with their nose and instead of food coming out it's it's fear-based you know news stories designed to scare you and keep you glued to the tv well there's there's an element to that especially with these uh political silos where if you're one party you listen to only one station right. or, or the other party listens only to the other station and you get very different accounts of of what's going on so that uh, it exacerbates the uh, rudeness, the tension, and and to be frank, the hatred that uh, is in our society. Well, it was funny. I was at a I was at a dinner party the other night, and I live down in Los Angeles. And you know, these people were two different political spectrums, and they were laughing about not ha ha laughing, but but mocking a little bit like the Russian propaganda and the Ukrainian propaganda, because, you know, they're, you know, diametrically opposed to villainizing the other sides, you know, regardless of what you feel about going politically. And they're like, can you believe those Russians believe this? Can you believe those Ukrainians believe this? And I'm like, what? Like, listen to yourselves. You know, you've got Fox News over here and you've got MSNBC over here. You know, it's, I think it's part of the human condition for us to want to band together and dominate. Like I, I don't, I didn't find that banding together and dominating when I was, you know, 
wherever I was, I felt unity, peace, love, joy, all the, you know, hippy dippy, you know, tambourine swinging music versus here where it is, we need to identify our separateness so I can dominate you or I can feel better than you. And that's all the stuff that I felt was so silly. And I started to see it. It was like somebody put on a different pair of glasses and things that I used to take so seriously, like you got to get in and get that deal closed. Like, come on, get in, push that deal closed. All of a sudden I'm like, oh, it's probably going to close whether I get upset about it or not. And I understand we need money to live. We need to do all these things, but it's a very different relationship you have with money, with the world, with business, you know, all these different things seem very differently after like in the before and after. Well, I, I do know that for many people, Evan Alexander, who wrote Proof of Heaven, being a prime example, it took years to integrate that experience and to be willing to come out publicly and talk about it. Right. As a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about, you know, the board of directors coming down on you for being a nutball. I mean, that's at the highest you know, level of risk. I mean, you and me podcasting in our houses are one thing. It's another thing, a world-renowned medical surgeon that's, what, 12, 15 years in education and residency plus a well, you know, respected career to turn around and go, yeah, this is what happened to me when I was dead. Uh Absolutely. It's, it's very hard. And the truth is, though, that uh, scientists are not immune. These kinds of experiences happen regularly to scientists. Mm -hmm. They uh, just, it seems, have, uh, many of them at least, a harder time talking about it be because the ridicule amongst your colleagues uh, can, you know, can mean, are you going to get a promotion or not? Are you going to get a research grant or not? Will they fire you from your job or not? Right. That's about appeasing the powers of that be. That's yeah. not that has nothing to do with speaking your truth. Well, in a way, I feel fortunate that after I got my doctoral degree, I was not hireable. No university would uh, sure. hire me at that point. Uh, and even amongst the parapsychology community, to be honest, I was sort of persona non grata for a while because I had the temerity to include in my doctoral research some work uh, involving the overlap between UFOs and parapsychology. And that was like, for the parapsychologists, a step too far. Mm. Interesting. Well, how many of those parapsychologists have won the award you were won? Could you list how many of those won the award you won? I'm thinking goose well, egg. There, there were 29 essays that won some awards. Uh, Robert Bigelow gave out nearly two million dollars wow. in, in prize money. Uh, of course, I got the grand prize, which right. was really nice in a way. Uh, people say this is the equivalent of the Nobel Prize mm -hmm. in your field of parapsychology. It's the Absolutely. biggest prize that's ever been given out as a, as a prize in the field of parapsychology. And some of my friends have said, this vindicates you for taking that risky decision 50 years ago. Absolutely. You know, I do think that there's some sort of karmic, cosmic, you know, whatever payback that happens. And you know, I look at you and this beautiful success story of, of, you know, breaking new ground and being 
different and not afraid to speak your truth and stepping out and you know being rewarded for it i feel very similar to you 16 years ago nobody knew what podcasting was and nobody wanted you know a 35 year old podcaster you know podcasters were 1920 you know and here i am grandma and technology going you know wait a minute how do you know how to do this how do you know how to i'm like well i have a background in you know programming a background in computer science so i can do these things but it wasn't something anybody looked at like okay you're a mom you know you used to run a sales company you should be out selling like these are the things that's the box that I fit in. And the first three years of my shows, I couldn't get a sponsor to save my life. So I just did it as a, as a public service to the universe, as a, you know, all these things. And now who would think 15 years later, it's how I support me and my kids. Well, that's wonderful. But we have to break ground and we are broke for a while. Yeah. And yeah. not, but not broken. That's mm -hmm. the thing. We are broke, but not broken. <laughs> Because I do think we're put on this earth, like you're put on this earth to create something. You created something where there was nothing. Yeah, that, that's certainly true. And uh, I'm very happy to learn about your success. Thank you. From one to another, from one. Yeah. <laughs> so when you, when you were writing this article, did you know you had a winner? Like, could you feel it? As, as a matter of fact, I did. I knew that I was going to win. Uh, the closer we got to the announcing of the winners, mm -hmm. the more certain I was. And the interesting thing is this, at the same time on the New Thinking Aloud channel that I host, I interviewed a young man named R.J. Spina. I don't know if you're familiar. Oh, sure, R.J. who wrote the, uh, he does a, a healing book. Supercharged yeah. self-healing. So he's talking about how he knew with absolute certainty after he was given a diagnosis of permanent paraplegia right. that he could heal this, even though the medical doctors were telling him it's impossible. You're going to have to learn to live the rest of your life as a person who yeah. has no bodily control below the chest. And he just knew he just without knew. any doubt because of his early experiences and his, his inner knowing it's as if he had, well, he had many mystical experiences mm -hmm. as a child. So, and continued. So he knew that uh, th these are like near death experiences. Mm -hmm. He could access a part of himself that had that knowledge. Right. And the thing is, the most important thing is he listened. Yeah. Like when people say to me, you worked in podcasting for 10 years before you made a dime, almost a decade before I started making any money whatsoever. And they'll say, why did you keep going? And I'm like, I just knew. And you, but it's, and it's not a loud shouting voice that says, keep going, you'll get there. Or like, do this, do this, do this. It's just a very quiet little voice that says, this will, you'll do this. This is fine. Yeah. So when I interviewed RJ, it was like a week before the announcement of the winners of the Bigelow competition. And as he's saying that you just know you have absolute certainty, I'm thinking to the, myself, yes, I know, but I didn't want to say anything about it then. Because right. I didn't want to, first of all, 
be egotistical and tell everybody, hey, I've already won, and they haven't even announced the winners. Yeah. But, but there was an absolute certainty, almost as if this is part of my destiny. Exactly. It's, it's, and that's the thing that I think when you walk in the path that you were designed for this experience to have, you know, this life experience, this, you know, get in this meat suit and run around the planet doing all sorts of things. When you're in alignment with what you came to do, there is a peace, there is a knowing, and when there's a hiccup or a conflict or things aren't going, like like for me with the podcasting, no sponsors would touch it, you know? They're not gonna, you know, listen to a South American shaman, you know? <laughs> Who's gonna get on board with that? Like, you know, maybe some musical instrument company, but nobody would get on board with it or in bed with it. And um, people would say, why don't you just quit? And I'm like, because I know this is the right thing to do. I know, you know, or I would just not answer. I would just sit there going, well, because I know it's not time right now. And I don't know why it took so long, but it did. And the rewards have been fabulous at the end result. But, you know, it's one of those things where it's very quiet. It's not a loud voice in your head. And you got to shut up enough to hear it. Yeah. Well, in, in my case, it took 50 years. And uh, I, would, I would say that, you know, what kept me going was that I love this field. Uh, I love what I do. And, you know, I interviewed Joseph Campbell on one occasion, the great mythologist. Wow. And uh, I asked him at the end of the interview, is there anything you want to tell the young people listening mm -hmm. to this program? And he said uh, a phrase he's known for. He said, follow your passion. That's right. Follow your passion. Even if your passion doesn't align with everybody else's, and it shouldn't, because we shouldn't all have the same passion. You know, if we were, were set on this earth in different countries, different languages, different belief systems, different bodies, different everything, right? Even identical twins have differences. You know, we have all these differences. Why would we all be charged with the same mission? That's the one thing that always befuddled me, that if we're coming here to have this earthly experience and grow as a soul, grow as whatever, you know, for whatever reason we come here, the outcome was never conformity. You bet. You know, where in nature does everything conform? We live in a pluralistic universe, which I think is a very good thing. Uh, in a way, so many different people are going in so many different directions. It's sort of, uh, I hear from a lot of people who are into conspiracy theories, and I don't want to deny that conspiracies occur, but I think for the most part, it's very hard for a conspiracy to be successful on a large scale because there are too many competing interests pulling in too many different directions for any one of them to really dominate. Right. I absolutely like I look at the like, you know, I just look at physics and go there's, you know, there's so many things that that can take a priority or can can cause a leak or somebody can get, you know, something for them personally rather than the greater good, you know, all of those come into play. So how do you keep all of that? You know, it would be a miracle to keep these conspiracies under wraps. Yeah, although uh, I do think uh, I know we're getting a little bit off topic, but I do think that uh, 
if, if there is a dominant motif, at least in the Western world, it's our consumer culture. Oh, absolutely. Right. Absolutely. No argument here. And, and that, to me, it's tied in with materialism, the feeling that, that you have to possess a lot of things in order to be a, a person of value, you know, or a person of merit. It, it's tied in with this belief that the only thing that's real is the physical universe and that things that go on inside of your head, mystical experiences, near-death experiences, dreams, visions, that those are all just immaterial. Right, they're immaterial. But the funny thing is if you source back to lots of our material things and you look at the inventors, where did the ideas come from? They came through a dream. Like, you know, you know, and you look at like, I look at all these programmers that I worked with over the years and even my own programming experience when I would hit a wall, Jeffrey, the first thing I would do is go take a nap. Hmm. And I'm like, and I would right before I go to sleep, I'm like, all right, I need the, I need the answer to come to me. I want to take a nap. And when I come up, it'll be there. And then I wake up, you know, an hour later or two, five, 10 hours later and oh, there it is. And then you think of these old adages that we heard growing up. I don't know how old you are, um, but like I heard growing up, my mom would always say, well, sleep on it. You'll make a better decision in the morning, right? Sleep on it. Just sleep on it. So whenever I have a problem, the first thing I do is go to sleep. Because I know whatever's going on in dreamland or in my head or while I'm whatever, to me, it's a big data sorting thing. Eventually, you know, I'll wake up and the right thing will pop out. Thomas Edison, the great inventor, used to take frequent naps. And I, he invented, what, thousands of in inventions. And I, I'm pretty sure the napping was part of his creative process. Oh, napping is not to be underrated. I don't care how old you are. Napping is great for the creative spirit. Well, listen, we are, our time is up. I've enjoyed every minute that I had with you today. I can't wait to have you come on and we'll debate some other great issues and talk about things. I'm also really super proud of you because I got to meet you in person, which is super cool, but also because you're kind of like in my book, King of the Nerds. And when King of the Nerds wins the big enchilada, wins the big prize, that is like, it's like just so much encouragement for the nerds that follow behind you, for the people that aren't walking the same path as everybody else. And people kind of make fun of you or they look down on you or think what you're doing is ridiculous or, you know, has no merit for you to win the big prize. That means the rest of us can march forward with more hope and more uh, support in what we're doing, because it is hard to walk a beat away from everyone else. Well, thank you, Sandra. And I mean King of the Nerds in the most flattering way. <laughs> I took it that way. Good. I'm glad you did. So I want you guys to look up Jeffrey Mishlove and um, go ahead and, and check out his thinking aloud. And uh, go ahead. I'm going to actually go tonight. I'm going to look up your essay. I'm going to read it because I really look forward to it. It's uh, online at the Bigelow Institute website, which is... Um, what is it? Bix.org, bigelowinstitute.org. 
And uh, my YouTube channel, incidentally, is New Thinking Aloud. It's A-L-L-O-W-E-D, not A-L-O-U-D. And New Thinking Aloud is all one word. You can go to newthinkingaloud.com. I just found it and I just subscribed to it. So there's your music coming in. No thinking aloud. So you've got at least one new subscriber from today's podcast. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Jeffrey. It's been a pleasure. My pleasure too. We're glad you joined us for Powered Up Talk Radio. Each week, we share innovative ways to stay focused in a world that's experiencing dramatic changes. Find out who you are, discover your purpose, and challenge yourself to be all you can be. See you next time on Powered Up Talk Radio.